we're going to now dig into exactly how this all works, right? How it's a great question mark. Why is exercise so amazing? How does it actually give us so, so many amazing health benefits? Well, there's three main mechanisms that we're going to talk about by which exercise improves our health. The first is optimizing our stress response. The second is reducing inflammation. And then the third is enhancing our brain health. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché-Urcuyo, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, my husband, Dr. Danny, and I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is one of our Pursuing Health pearls. In medicine, we refer to clinical pearls as small bits of freestanding information relevant to clinical practice, usually based on experience. Pursuing Health Pearls are shorter episodes in which Danny and I offer you succinct, high-yield info on common health conditions or other topics. We do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome back to Pursuing Health Pearls. All right, guys. So this is our last big deep dive on the cornerstones of health. So we have talked about stress, about nutrition, about sleep, and here we're diving in deep on physical activity and exercise. And we know that these episodes can get a bit long and a bit dense, but we felt like it was really important to spend some time laying the groundwork with these deep dives on the cornerstones of health before we dive into other more complicated, nuanced topics. So from here on out, you can expect shorter, more bite-sized episodes on relevant topics, Um, but we do want to hear from you. What topics do you most want to hear us cover on upcoming Pearls episodes? You can let us know by going to pursuing-health.com forward slash contact dash us. It's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be in the blog post. But we appreciate your um, feedback because that's why we're doing it. We're doing it for you. So we want to know you know, what do you most want to hear about? Right. So before we dive in, we do want to remind you that we don't have sponsors on the podcast. And this is something that we've thought really long mm-hmm. and hard about. Um, and we feel that it's important for us to stay true to our values so that the information that we provide to you isn't influenced by um, sponsorships. And so we can give you really the most unbiased information as possible. And the only way that we're able to continue doing what we're doing now is with your support. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, you can support us by going to pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber for less than a cost, the cost of a latte each month. Yes. And all of our subscribers do get access to workout programs, exclusive discount codes to companies with products and services that we use ourselves and that we do not receive any compensation from. Um, as well as private live Q&A sessions that we do every single month. So we just finished our August Q&A session with our subscribers yesterday. It was super fun. Every month, everyone has amazing questions and it's great to be able to connect with you on a more personal level. So again, if you're able, we would greatly appreciate your support. You can head to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. Okay. Here we go. Let's do this. (laughs) All right. So we're going to talk about physical activity and exercise. And before we do that, we want to lay out some terminology. So 
Physical activity, generally speaking, refers to any unplanned activity that you're doing throughout the day as part of your job or daily activity. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, working at home, maybe you're tidying up the home, that's still considered physical activity. If you're a construction worker and you're working, definitely still considered mm -hmm. physical activity. Walking to the car, walking through the store, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, that all counts. Now, it's a little bit different from exercise if we're splitting hairs here because exercise is defined as intentional, planned, and a structured form of physical activity. Think about sports, right? right? Sports are like, I'm going to go on a hike or I'm going to go on a bike ride. Things like that would be considered exercise. Yeah. But Yeah, for our purposes, <laughs> we're really going to mix those two together. We're going to talk about them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. All right. And we suspect that many of you listening, like us, do some form of regular exercise and have made it a part of your life because you recognize the benefits. So maybe it helps your mood. Maybe it gives you more energy. Maybe it gives you the strength and endurance to do other things in your life, like your work or chasing after your kids. But here we're going to break down all the nitty gritty details of the benefits of physical activity. And we're going to talk about the mechanisms behind why it has such a positive impact on our physical and our mental health. Yep. But first, we're going to spend some time looking at the state of physical activity mm -hmm. in the United States and the world to give us some context. And we're going to break down the latest guidelines from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And they came out with a document called the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans. Now, I'm going to read an excerpt from these guidelines. And I don't usually like you know reading something off here on the podcast, but I think that this excerpt really summarizes things well. So here we go. Regular physical activity is one of the most important things people can do to improve their health. Moving more and sitting less have tremendous benefits for everyone, regardless of age, sex, race, ethnicity, or current physical fitness level. Individuals with a chronic disease or a disability benefit from regular physical activity, as do women who are pregnant. The scientific evidence continues to build. Physical activity is linked with even more positive health outcomes than we previously thought. And even better, benefits can start accumulating with small amounts of and immediately after doing physical activity. Mm -hmm. So that's a really strong statement. Um, one that I personally think is the strongest I've heard from the U.S. government for any kind of medical intervention ever. So it's very bold. Mm -hmm. It's I mean, the benefits are numerous. It's one of the most widely studied of these sort of lifestyle, lifestyle behaviors yeah. and its impacts with our health. And we can only imagine if we had a drug that did all the things that exercise or physical activity does, it would be blockbuster. Oh, for sure. But it's something that's accessible to all of us. Yep. So before we dive into those guidelines, we'll first just talk about how many people in the U.S. are actually meeting this prescribed amount of physical activity. So shockingly, only 26% <laughs> of men, 19% of women, and 20% of adolescents report meeting the current guidelines for physical activity. Yikes. Yeah. It's not great. And that means that close to 80% of Americans are not getting enough physical activity to support their health. So we have a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. You know, it's, it affects people's health, but it also has an economic cost mm -hmm. as well. So it's linked to $117 billion in annual health care costs and 10% of premature deaths. So it's a huge um, economic cost and a huge loss of life cost mm -hmm. even as well. And the therapeutic potential of exercise is far-reaching, given that seven of the 10 most common chronic diseases are improved by physical activity. So there's a broad applicability for this kind of stuff. And so along with nutrition and stress management and stress, uh, physical activity really is a cornerstone for health. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're talking specifically about Americans here from that that data and from these guidelines, but this pattern of insufficient physical activity is also seen worldwide, although not quite to the same degree that we have here <laughs> in America, because we like to do everything 
better. (laughs) Um, But worldwide, one in five people are not getting enough physical activity, according to a study in 2011 of over 300,000 people in 76 different countries. So we know that this is not just a U.S. problem. It is a global problem as well. So physical activity guidelines, let's dive into these. Um, Again, we're going to be referencing the physical activity guidelines for Americans, that document that was published by the Department of Health and Human Services. And it's the second edition um, that we'll be covering. And it was published pretty recently, about two years ago in 2018. Mm Mm-hmm. So before we dive in, we'll give a couple definitions. This will just give us some context as we run through the guidelines. So first, we'll talk about the intensity of physical activity. So we go from light to moderate to vigorous. So light intensity activity, and these are generally referring to more aerobic activities, but as we know, you know, you can intermix different types of activity too. So light intensity is generally slow-paced walking, leisurely walking, maybe cooking, doing some light household chores, um, not really getting short of breath, doing any of these things. Moderate intensity is maybe a brisk walk, light biking, heavier house cleaning, something like scrubbing the floors or doing yard work like mowing the lawn or raking the yard. So a a state where maybe you can talk, but you're not really able to sing. So you're getting a little bit short of breath. And then vigorous intensity are the things like jogging, running, even carrying heavy groceries upstairs would count as vigorous, shoveling snow, biking fast, or a high intensity fitness class, something like a CrossFit class would certainly, pretty much everything that we would do in CrossFit would fall under the vigorous intensity category. And it's really the moderate, as we'll see, the moderate and the vigorous intensity that has the most benefit for our health. But light intensity is important too, because we want to make sure when we're not doing moderate or vigorous intensity, that we're not just sitting. So that light intensity activity is important throughout the day too, to prevent us from being totally sedentary. And I thought it was so interesting what exercises were included in the moderate intensity category. I thought that, you know, those would be light intensity, things like, you know, working around the house, walking, walking, things like, or vigorous walking, that kind of thing. I would, I was kind of surprised by that, which tells us that probably the health benefits of physical exercise are very low hanging fruit. You don't need to be doing too Mm -hmm. much to get the benefits. Right. And it's interesting you think about, I mean, we're coming from a very warped perspective, being as involved in CrossFit as we are. And, you know, previously using CrossFit as more of a competitive outlet where our active quote unquote active rest days (laughs) would be doing hours of what we considered to be light or moderate activity, but really was actually vigorous as we're doing rowing or going for a 5k or a 10k run. Right, right, right. Um, So obviously everything is relative. And as we'll see, that's true here when we get to the guidelines. For sure. So we'll talk about, um, we've talked about intensity. So next let's talk about the different types of physical activity. And these will become, you know, very obvious to you. I'm sure you've heard of these before. We've talked about aerobic activity. This is that endurance cardio type of stuff where you're, you know, examples of that are brisk walking, running, biking, jumping rope, double unders for you CrossFitters, Mm -hmm. Uh, swimming, um, really anything that, you know, increases your heart rate. Then there's muscle strengthening exercises, which are thought of as resistance training or weightlifting. This can include, um, you know, using an external force mm-hmm. or it can also be body weight as mm-hmm. well. So things like weights or resistance bands mm-hmm. or just Barbells, body weight. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Lots of different options there. Bone strengthening exercises. Um, these are a different category. They put them in a different category in these guidelines. And these are exercises that put force on the promote, on the bone to promote growth and strength. So a lot of bounding activities impact with the ground jumping jabs jumping jab <laughs> jumping jacks uh running brisk walking jump rope um some weightlifting exercises can be bone strengthening as well and then next is balance right mm-hmm. so the things we've talked about thus far are more you know 
less neurological, mm-hmm. um, but balance is one of these components that's really, really important and is neurological and is trainable um, through some of the exercises we mentioned already. But you can train the balance system um, through walking backwards, standing on one leg, using those wobble boards that mm-hmm. people use when they're on standing desks, but lots of different options there. Weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting. weightlifting snatching, clean weights, and jerking, right. right? Of course. And then finally, flexibility. And flexibility is a form of exercise or training that enhances the joint to move through its full range of motion, meaning how it was designed to move. Mm-hmm. Imagine, you know, a toddler, how their joints move, how their hips move. That's full range of motion. And so flexibility can be, as we talked about in CrossFit, functional movements. You're moving mm-hmm. your joints through those full ranges of motion, or it can be, you know, specific dedicated flexibility mm-hmm. exercises to try to work on specific joints. Right. Um, but it's interesting reading through all of these. Of course, it reminds me of in our CrossFit Level 1 seminar going through our 10 general physical skills and thinking about a good, well-rounded CrossFit program. It incorporates all of these things without right. you necessarily having to think about it. Like, did I do my bone strengthening activity today? Or did <laughs> I do my muscle strengthening activity today? No, if you're doing a well-designed program, it should include all of these components without you necessarily having to think about it. Absolutely. All right. So now that we have those definitions out of the way, let's talk about the guidelines. So we're going to go through guidelines for children and adolescents, adults, and then we'll talk about some special considerations for older adults, those who have chronic health conditions and disabilities, and then pregnant and postpartum women. So we're going to start actually pretty young with preschool age children, so ages three to five. And interestingly, this second version of the guidelines is the first to introduce guidelines for this young age group. So The previous guidelines did not even address this age group, probably because most young kids, you know, it's natural for them to move and play throughout the day. But now there's mounting evidence that's become more and more clear how important it is for kids to be moving at this age and how important it is for, you know, their future weight and therefore their bone development. So they decided to include it in the guidelines. And I think probably, too, there is a component of the fact that our lifestyles now are actually making these kids more sedentary. Mm -hmm. So when it used to naturally be moving and playing throughout the day, now maybe they're spending time looking at screens, they're spending more time inside. And so maybe it's also just a statement to say, we have to pay attention to this in all of our children, um, even at younger ages. And we've seen this younger group be mentioned in other guidelines Mm -hmm. as well. When we talked about our statin episode, there were Mm -hmm. recommendations for younger children as well. So the health, you know, the the, the effects of inactivity are, are far reaching and that goes into the cholesterol literature as well. So mm-hmm. lots of room for improvement. And generally, you know, the guidelines are pretty simple. They basically just say that kids should be active throughout the day <laughs> to enhance their growth and development, encourage active play that includes a variety of activity types. So it's just a little bit of extra intention to say, hey, make sure that the kids are active throughout the day and doing things that are providing them with good variety for their growth and development. And they also talk in these guidelines a bit about uh, older children as well, Mm -hmm. age 6 to 17. And they provide a little bit more clarity in terms of what they recommend. They say age-appropriate, enjoyable variety of activities Mm -hmm. are recommended. That makes sense. But they go further to say that it should include 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity daily and three days a week, it, is, it should include vigorous activity, muscle strengthening activity, and bone strengthening activity. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty sizable dose of exercise if mm-hmm. you think about it. And I think it's partly because that's where kids are doing a lot of their development, mm-hmm. right? It's where we, we develop bone strength mm-hmm. and coordination and all these important things um, that are going to pay um, that are going to be important later in life. Absolutely. And if you think about it, probably 
a lot of kids, I mean, 60 minutes a day, it's a lot for a lot of kids who, if they're not in actively engaged in sports or activities, Mm -hmm. um, you know, easily they could end up spending their time after school watching TV or playing video games or on screens or doing something inside. And so this could be difficult for kids to achieve, especially if they're not engaged in community-based activities. Um, so it's something to, to be mindful of that, you know, we said there's some low hanging fruit here when it comes to the adults, as far as meeting the, the activity guidelines, but for kids, you know, I think it is something that we have to be really mindful of. And those are their really important developmental years. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. All right. So as we get to adults, general recommendations are move more and sit less throughout the day. Shocker. Shocker. (laughs) Um, Makes a lot of sense, right? Um, And they also state that any amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity is beneficial. So even climbing the stairs instead of taking the elevator is still beneficial to our health. So the previous version of the guidelines had recommended at least a 10-minute window of exercise in order for it to be able to be beneficial for our health because there just wasn't a lot of data at that time. But now we know any amount is beneficial. So that's why we love our morning fives in the morning is because it doesn't take a lot. But if we can get our heart rate up a little bit in the morning, every little bit counts. Um, We also know or the guidelines also say that for getting substantial health benefits, adults should do at least 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity activity every week or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity activity per week or some combination of the two. So if we break that down, what does that look like? At a minimum, that means 30 minutes of brisk walking five days a week or 15 minutes of vigorous activity like biking or running five days a week or some combination of the two. So maybe you do a walk two days a week for 30 minutes and three days a week you do a 15 minute bike ride or run. So overall, it's relatively easy to obtain, um, you know, maybe not right away for a lot of individuals, maybe that's something to work up to, but it's not a lot of time if you think about it. Right. Um, And we also know that there you can get additional health benefits, of course, for getting more than that upper limit. So even if you get more than 300 minutes of activity per week, that can confer some additional health benefits too. That's helpful for us exercise enthusiasts. Right. It helps (laughs) us feel better about the amount that maybe we're exercising. And then, um, And they also recommend muscle strengthening activities of moderate or greater intensity involving all muscle groups two or more days a week. So again, something that, you know, if we're just biking or walking or jogging, we might want to incorporate some other muscle strengthening activity in there too. They also um, outline some recommendations for older adults as Mm -hmm. well. And they're the same or similar to the recommendations for adults, but there are a few extra key points. Part of their physical activity should include multi-component activity. And this is activity that includes balance training, aerobic, and muscle strengthening activities. And the level of effort should be relative to their fitness level. So Hmm, we've heard that before. We've heard that before. This is something we talk about a lot in CrossFit, this whole concept of relative intensity. And what that may look like is for, you know, Someone in their 20s who's exercised their entire life, they may do a workout with pull-ups and back squats, mm-hmm. let's say, with you know 135 pounds in their back. Now, you give that same exercise to someone who's elderly, probably not a good idea. <laughs> and that dose would be too much. It'd be too intense. Mm-hmm. That elderly person may do something with a resistance band, some pull-downs with a resistance band, or just put a broomstick on their back, mm-hmm. and that would be their back squat. Yeah, squat to a box. Yeah, squat to a box. That would be another option. And that might be just as intense for them as the other exercises would be for the younger mm-hmm. individual. And that's the beautiful thing about CrossFit is that those two individuals could then be doing the same workout next to each other, 
but at their own relative intensity. It will look different, but they're each getting a lot of the benefits. Um, and why we love that quote that, um, you know, the needs of Olympic athletes and our grandparents differ in degree, not kind. So we all need this type of activity, but it's just the degree or the intensity that may be different. Mm -hmm. The guidelines go even further to address this concept of scaling, something that we talk about in CrossFit a lot. Mm -hmm. Changing the movement, either the range of motion or the movement itself, so that it's performed safely and at appropriate dose for the individual. And the guidelines, again, address this and say that this is absolutely crucial for safety. Now, let's say that somebody has physical limitations or chronic diseases and they can't get the 150 minutes of moderate activity per week. The guidelines still recommend getting as much as you can, mm -hmm. which is common sense. Again, common sense. Every little bit counts. And right. we'll see that in a second when we start to talk about the mortality benefits of exercise. So the guidelines also comment on pregnant and postpartum women. So in these women, they recommend at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic activity per week spread throughout the week again. And they also make the important distinction that if the woman was doing some vigorous intensity activity prior to pregnancy, she can certainly continue doing that during pregnancy and postpartum. Of course, she should be under the care of a healthcare provider who can monitor the progress of the pregnancy, and she should consult her healthcare provider about whether and how to adjust any physical activity during pregnancy and postpartum. So again, I think a lot of common sense, um, but important to note, you know, I think a lot of women now, it's, it's pretty much widely known that women who are already doing intense activity can continue that during pregnancy, but previously, I think that it was really frowned upon to be doing more intense activity during pregnancy. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really, really important for health, for pregnancy outcomes too, to stay physically active. So. Important for the health of the child. Yeah. All right. So adults with chronic health conditions and disabilities are also mentioned here. And the recommendations, again, are the same as for adults. But if people are unable to meet the guidelines, they should engage in regular physical activity according to their ability level and to avoid inactivity. Now, this whole idea of inactivity is going to be really important in a, in a few minutes here. But the, co the concept here really is that something is better mm -hmm. than nothing. And again, if you have chronic health conditions and um, disabilities, you should be under the care of a, of a health professional and perhaps talk with them or a, a trainer mm -hmm. to get a sense of what's appropriate for you and the dose that's appropriate for you. Absolutely. All right. So what are your thoughts, Danny? What do you think about these guidelines? Well, I'm, it doesn't really take much to meet them, right? Um, at least from, well, our, perspective, from, our, perspective, from our perspective. Right? For a lot of people, it is a lot to work up to exactly. 30 minutes of walking five days a week. Yeah. So it, it kind of depends on where you're coming from. If you're already physically active, you may say, great, this is fantastic. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, these are attainable goals for anyone and you can work work towards them. Getting just 30 minutes of brisk walking in or 15 minutes of jogging five days per week, I think is is really manageable. Um, and it's also good to know that if you do love exercising like we do, that mm -hmm. there's still some additional benefit, even if you get beyond that 150 or 300 minutes per week. Absolutely. And uh, to me, a lot of the recommendations are just common sense. Um, and they remind me of a really well-implemented CrossFit program. So things like, if you're pregnant or you have some sort of health condition, make sure you're communicating with your doctor. I think that's good common sense that we should all be abiding by, um, including multi-component activities to improve your aerobic, your strength, your bone health, balance, flexibility. You know, again, as we talked about with CrossFit, you're, it, the program is taking all of these things into account. So that's not something that you have to think about, um, you know, whether you hit each of these things every week, working at relative intensity, as we talked about, and then knowing that if you, even if you can't meet the guidelines, the minimum of the guidelines, still keep doing it. it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it at all. You can still get benefit by doing the best you can. Right. 
So let's say that you are interested in starting an exercise program. You know, lots of folks have never exercised a day mm -hmm. in their life and it can be really, really intimidating. They're worried about getting injured or getting a heart attack or something, something else happening. And that's a reasonable fear. And the guidelines, again, address this, which is very, very helpful. And they go as far as saying studies in generally healthy people clearly show that there is a low risk of injury or harm with moderate intensity activity. So mm -hmm. that's, that's reassuring. Now, with common sense, again, depending on how much physical activity you do, there's a greater <laughs> risk of injury. So for example, if you're jogging you know, 10 miles per week versus 40 miles per week, you're going to have a higher risk of injury with 40 miles per mm -hmm. week. But um, really- Same thing, like you mentioned driving. If you're driving 40 hours a week versus <laughs> 10 hours a week, you have a higher chance of getting in a car accident, right? Right, exactly. And of course, we should mention that if you're engaging in something like a collision sport, like football mm -hmm. or a sport like soccer, then of course your injury rate is mm -hmm. going to be higher compared to like other skiing, has skiing higher snowboarding. Rates. Yeah. Sure. It's going to be different than if you were jogging every day. Absolutely. It's also really important to note that those who are less fit are more likely to be injured than those who are more fit when they're doing the same activity. So this is um, really an illustration of how important it is to start slow and work your way up to improve your fitness. So you can be in that more fit category who's less likely to be injured. So one example of this is cardiac events. So having a sudden heart attack or sudden death while doing exercise. This is actually very rare during physical activity, although a lot of people are afraid of it. But the risk does increase when you have someone who goes from being not very active at all to really pushing the boundaries of their physical limits. So, you know, one example, as we went through medical school and some of our ACLS training, I think they always showed the example of the older man who was not very fit, all of a sudden there's a snowstorm, he's out shoveling snow, and then he has a heart attack. So he went from being very physically inactive to all of a sudden life placed this huge physical demand on him and his body was not able to keep up, keep up with that. And that's what ended in a heart attack. So in order to minimize this risk, again, it's important for someone who's deconditioned and just starting to ramp up their activity to start low and go slow so that you can be prepared for whenever life throws a demand your way, like, you know, a snowstorm or something else that you are prepared and your body's able to handle that. Right. And just like anything in medicine, we have to look at the risks and the benefits, mm -hmm. right? And the, the potential risks of exercise are low compared to the potential benefits of mm -hmm. exercise. Overall. So, overall. That's, yeah, abundantly clear from the research. And you have to think too about the risks of not being physically active. Right. Like we just talked about one, like if you're not physically active and all of a sudden life places some physical demand on you, you're probably not going to be able to handle it. The risks of decrepitude of needing support as you age, of having to go into a nursing home earlier, the risks of chronic metabolic disease. I mean, the risks of depression. There's we cancer. We could go all day. <laughs> and we're going to go into those here in just a second. But, you know, weighing the risks and benefits is really important. And, and although I think a lot of people can be nervous to start a new program because they're worried about injury or having a heart attack or something like that, when you look at the big picture, it's very clear that the benefits outweigh the risks if you do it in a reasonable way. Right. Um, all right. So there are some other ways to help minimize risk. So talking about doing it in a reasonable way. Um, one is just choosing physical activity that's appropriate for the current fitness level and health goals. So again, we're not going to take that elderly man who's not active at all and have him go out and run a marathon, right? We're going to start <laughs> with something that's more appropriate. Um, increasing physical activity gradually over time. So again, that start low and go slow concept. Um, start with lower intensity activities and gradually increase how often and how long they're done. And I would just add in here too that especially if you don't have experience with a particular activity, consider some one-on-one -on -one instruction when you're learning something new. Um, work on 
establishing good movement patterns and avoiding creating bad habits from the beginning that could then potentially increase your rate of injury later on. So this is a a great example of CrossFit's charter of mechanics, consistency, intensity, where we want to make sure you have good mechanics first. You're doing those consistently before we add in the intensity piece. And why a lot of gyms um, have an on-ramp program where you are working one-on-one or in a very small group with a trainer to begin um, so that you can follow this charter and slowly ramp up your activity in an appropriate way and develop good movement patterns. And then once you get more and more physically active and put more and more stresses on your body, let's say that you do absolutely love CrossFit and you're, mm-hmm. this, I'm, a, I'm trying to apply this to younger folks as well. Um, if you have bad movement patterns and let's say you get the muscular strength to do a 300, mm-hmm. 400 pound back squat, but you have bad mechanics, you're going to get injured. Mm-hmm. So even if you're young, it still pays dividends to really have good mechanics, even, you know, beyond just, absolutely. um, um you know, avoiding decrepitude mm-hmm. and things like We're that. Or thinking about the long game, being yeah. able to do this yeah. for many more decades. All right. So I also, we also want to mention a little bit about um, gear, sports equipment, and choosing safe environments because this is also critical. So, you know, making sure that you have the, the appropriate gear. I always think of running shoes, making sure you have the right running shoes if you're going to start a running program. And he's um, probably thinking of that because his own running shoes are very, super very old. And yeah. we've been talking about ordering new ones for months now? Yes, yes. We need we to do that do today. today. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually training for a half marathon. So, um, so yeah. you're going to need some new we're shoes. We're going to need some new shoes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so another, another, um, note here about safe environments. Um, think about exercising in environments that are designed for exercise, or at least create a buffer between you and other, um, potential dangers. And what I'm thinking about here is sidewalks, you know, bike lanes, things like that. You want to make sure that you're, that there's physical separation from cars. And we've all heard these tragic stories of runners or bikers, you know, getting injured or potentially even dying um, when being hit by a car. So be smart and um, exercise in a, in a safe, mm-hmm. safe place. And, you know, not every community has access to um, areas for exercise. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, creates lots of health disparities mm-hmm. as well. And it requires, I think, a systemic, a community-wide and system-wide approach to make exercise, safe exercise, accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. I think as we've all seen during this pandemic and during this these quarantine periods, um, you know, it is possible as we're all cooped up in our homes to get exercise. And even with just a small, mm-hmm. you know, square footage in your home, you can always do some basic, you know, burpees, like we say, do five minutes of burpees in the morning or do some body weight exercises or running in place. But um, certainly, you know, not having a safe place and a safe environment to do exercise outside really does contribute to a lot of health disparities. So it's something that, you know, I'm, I, I hope that we will continue to address here on the podcast, uh, health disparities in more detail, but that's one thing that, you know, we all need to work towards in our communities. Yeah. Um, One other piece about safety would be air quality. So this is something that's not really talked about a lot. I didn't really think about it until we prepared for this podcast. Yeah, it's actually really well known that, you know, especially exercising or being in areas of high air pollution is associated with health problems like asthma attacks and cardiac events. Um, And so if if it's possible to modify the location or the timing of exercise outdoors to avoid heavy traffic or avoiding rush hour or industrial sites, Um, or high pollution times, that can really improve the safety as well. So the last thing you want is to be trying to do something good for your health and go outside and go for a run, but the air pollution is super high. And then that contributes to having a heart attack or having an asthma attack. So um, there is a website um, for the Environmental Protection Agency Air Quality Index. It's 
www.airnow.gov, and that will allow you to check um, the air conditions when, when they're unhealthy in your area. So, And I've even seen news stations start to report air quality as well. Mm-hmm. So keep an eye on that um, when you're looking at the, the weather for the next day. Absolutely. And as a reminder, you know, if you have chronic health conditions, disabilities, um, if you're pregnant, it does make sense to speak with a healthcare provider mm-hmm. and potentially enroll the help of a trainer to figure out what's appropriate mm-hmm. for you. All of that can just help contribute to our safety and minimizing those potential risks. Right. All right. So now that we know the guidelines and we've talked about some parameters for implementing physical activity safely, let's talk about the impact of physical activity on our health. So I think the most striking is the impact of physical activity on mortality. Yeah. Um, and really on all-cause mortality. And, and what all-cause mortality means, for those of you that don't know, it's it means really what it sounds like, death from any cause, mm-hmm. getting hit by a, a car or cardiovascular disease, really dying of, of any cause whatsoever. And this means that if you do regular physical activity, you live longer than if you were physically inactive. And this is really the the closest that we can get <laughs> to this kind of fountain of youth kind of stuff. It's, it's amazing. It's really, exercise is, is extremely powerful. And to put some numbers on this, Um, It's estimated that people who um, exercise 150 minutes per week, so meeting those guidelines, have a 33% lower risk of death from all causes than people who are physically inactive. So that's that's a huge, huge effect. Yeah, I would take that any day. I mean, you're going to be hard pressed to find a drug that's going to have that kind of an impact on your mortality. So in the guidelines, which we have linked to, and we've actually put a copy of this graph in the show notes, if you go over to pursuing-health.com forward slash PH podcast, Um, there's this really beautiful graph that compares physical activity and our mortality. And so if you're able to look at it, I would highly recommend um, taking a look. But if you're just listening, what the graph shows is on the x-axis, it has the amount of physical activity per week. And on the y-axis, it has mortality. And what you see is as you start off on the far left, with the very lowest amount of physical activity per week, zero physical activity per week, you have the highest mortality, obviously. No surprise. And then what's amazing is that as you start to do more physical activity, so just doing very little bits of physical activity every week, you have this really strong drop-off in your curve. So your mortality really starts to, to decrease in a dramatic way. Um, and any amount of activity really helps to reduce that impact on mortality risk. Um, but most of the benefit, once you get to an area that correlates with 150 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity per week, which is correlating with those guidelines, that's where you see the most bang for your buck. You're getting most of the benefit by the time you're doing that much activity every week. But as we talked about, as you go out further to the right and you do more physical activity per week, there seems to be some additional benefit and there doesn't seem to be any additional risk in terms of increased mortality, even up to three to five times the amount of exercise in the guidelines. So good news for us who've done a lot of physical activity in our <laughs> past. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've, we've hammered this point that exercise helps us live longer, right? But we also want to have high quality life when we're around Mm -hmm. and exercise helps improve that and addresses a lot of the chronic health conditions that we may experience as we age through life. So one of those very common health conditions that we've (laughs) talked about ad nauseum and and for good reason is cardiometabolic health. Mm -hmm. So our metabolic health, our blood sugar, cholesterol, just to name a few factors here. Um, And this is really the area that's been most heavily researched and has the most data that um, demonstrates that, 
you know, exercise is, is really powerful and can treat and potentially reverse some of these conditions. So physical activity strongly reduces the risk of cardiovascular disease, things like mm-hmm. heart attack, stroke, um, heart failure, but also dying from these conditions mm-hmm. as well. So if you have those conditions, you should still exercise. <laughs> um, exercise reduces blood pressure. Most people know that, but most people may not know that it, even just after one bout of exercise, your blood pressure can be lower. Mm-hmm. So the effects can be pretty immediate. And physical activity reduces the risk of type 2 diabetes. This makes sense. You know, we've talked about in uh, our cardiometabolic and our metabolic episode mm-hmm. that um, exercise increases insulin sensitivity, which is um, a big problem in people with, with diabetes. So preventing diabetes and reversing diabetes or treating diabetes, reversing the progression of diabetes, exercise has a very critical role to play there. Also improves cholesterol reduces triglycerides, improves that good cholesterol, HDL. You know, I could go on and on and on and on (laughs) about all the benefits. Um, You know, it certainly reduces weight gain, um, weight control. Um, But we should note that, you know, the benefits of exercise are independent of weight loss. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not losing weight and you're exercising your heart out and you're frustrated that you're not losing weight, you're still getting the benefit. Still getting a lot of benefits. Yeah. Right. So keep going. (laughs) Keep on going. There's probably other reasons that, you know, can be explored as far as why the weight's not coming off. Absolutely. Um, so exercise also plays a big role in the health of our muscles and our bones. So as far as the muscles go, we know, obviously, um, I'm just stating the obvious here, muscle strengthening exercises help us to preserve or increase our muscle mass, our strength and our power. Um, and importantly, they can also improve our muscular strength in people who have conditions that are affecting the muscles. So things like stroke, MS, cerebral palsy, or spinal cord injury. So important for the health of our muscles. Um, but and we've heard some amazing stories from fo- some folks in our community who've used true. exercise and become stronger that's with true. these conditions. It's really neat. Absolutely. I mean, just um, the one that we just posted most recently with Dan O'Lotz, yeah. um, you know, really shows the impact that it's had on his life. Um, so when it comes to bones as well, exercise can also help us build strong bones when we're growing up. And then it can help to reduce the decline in bone density that is often seen with aging. Um, also can improve symptoms of osteoarthritis and other rheumatic conditions can help with pain management, function, and quality of life. And I just wanted to make a specific comment on arthritis because I know a lot of people have arthritis and that can be a deterrent to starting exercise because, oh my gosh, my joints hurt. I don't think exercise is a good idea. But actually what we do see is that regular exercise and physical activity is associated with decreased pain in those who have arthritis, improved physical function, and improved health-related quality of life. Um, And it also doesn't seem to make the arthritis progress anywhere. So you may feel like, oh gosh, I'm going to do more damage to my joints by exercising, but it doesn't seem to really worsen the progression. It actually only seems to have positive benefits in the long run. So that's really counter to what a lot of people think. And Mm -hmm. I think it's powerful stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, taking, we're in this state now and we're, we're we're prescribing lots of pain medications for osteoarthritis. We have the whole opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. So this is another tool in our toolbox Mm -hmm. to help treat chronic pain when it comes to osteoarthritis. Absolutely. And of course it's about finding the right type of exercise, something Mm -hmm. that, that does feel okay and is an okay place to start. And then maybe as you gain momentum, maybe you'll open doors to be able to do other types of exercise too. So let's talk a little bit about functional ability and fall prevention. And this is something that's really near and dear to our hearts mm-hmm. because we care a lot about our older folks, yeah. our parents, our grandparents. Um, we talk a lot about um, this in, in the CrossFit Level 1 seminar. Um, we 
really emphasize that physical activity is crucial for functionality and prevention of falls in older adults. We know that physical activity can prevent um, future limitations, future physical limitations for um, for individuals. So if you're able to, you know, use the restroom by yourself or get out of bed by yourself, you're independent. Mm -hmm. And once those uh, cap that capacity um, diminishes, you need more help. And then very often you can end up in, in a nursing home or potentially under the care, close, closer care mm -hmm. of your, of your loved ones. And something I hear a lot from, from older folks is they don't want to be a burden on their family. So mm -hmm. one of the best ways to really avoid that is to engage in a physical exercise regimen that doesn't necessarily have to be intense, mm -hmm. but, um, can really benefit from the benefit them and, and help them keep, uh, their independence. Mm -hmm. So Exercise is good, right? But it also helps prevent falls. And a, a note on falls here. Falls are one of, I think, the biggest triggers for functional decline mm -hmm. in elderly individuals. What we often see happen is that people fall, they break their hip, they're deconditioned. It's and now all of a sudden- spiral. Right. And now all of a sudden you're asking them when they're deconditioned to do therapy and to mm -hmm. recover. And it's therefore no surprise that people return to a lower baseline. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge change in their life and, and you know, the outcomes are not great when that happens. Right. It's what we talk about, you know, again, I keep referring back to the level one, but this sickness, wellness, fitness continuum that I love so much, it's that if we're starting off not being very physically active, we're starting off closer to that sickness side of the continuum, all of a sudden we fall, we break our hip, something happens, we don't have that buffer to be able right. to bounce back. So now we're just falling closer and closer to that sick side of the continuum as we're trying to recover rather than having that reserve to help us bounce back to a good quality of life. Yeah. And how do we get that reserve? It's using that multi-component physical activity that we talked about. Mm -hmm. The training that includes balance, strengthening, that includes gait and coordination exercises, modern intensity exercises like walking. Um, those can really reduce the risk of falls and improve fitness. And it's actually also helpful for people who aren't just frail, but also have other conditions like Parkinson's disease or stroke and things along those lines. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so, so important um, for our functionality, which is, I think, all throughout the lifespan. Hopefully, what we're all, you know, shooting for is to have good quality of life as we age. Yes. Um, now, physical activity also has tremendous impacts on the brain. Um, so, the positive benefits are very clear, and it's also a very exciting and continually emerging area of research. Um, they can be immediate or they can be with long-term regular exercise. So some of the benefits of exercise that are more immediate after just one bout can be things like reduced anxiety, improved sleep, improvements in some aspects of our cognitive function, like our performance on an academic test, um, our executive function, our ability to process and our memory. And we've felt that, you know, when oh. we're working out in the morning, we have a much better day. Absolutely. We're much more productive. Yeah. We love working. We've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, but we've loved the quarantine time because it allowed us to get into a great routine of working out in the morning right. and we're so much more sharp through the rest of the day. Right. Um, we also have additional benefits. So if we start doing regular physical activity over the course of days to weeks, we can see improvements in long-term anxiety and sleep in terms of the amount of deep sleep we're getting, the quality of sleep, sleep efficiency, and daytime sleepiness, um, decreased use of medications needed to facilitate sleep. Aspects of our executive function can also improve, like the ability to plan and organize, to monitor, to inhibit or facilitate certain behaviors, initiate tasks, and control our emotions. 
We Talk can, about a nootropic, you know? I right? know, right? <laughs> we can also see decreased risk of dementia with regular physical activity, um, which is something that I know a lot of people are concerned about, improvements in quality of life and reduced depression. So again, it's a miracle drug. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're going to break this down a little bit too as we get into the mechanisms of how exercise imparts its positive impact on our health um, in just a few minutes. So physical activity also dramatically decreases the risk of cancers as well. Cancers like breast cancer, colon, lung, bladder, endometrial, esophageal, kidney, stomach, just to name a few. A lot of types of cancer, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it reduces the risk of those. But let's say that you do have cancer, for example, breast cancer, colorectal or prostate cancer, it can reduce the risk of reoccurrence and improve quality of life. So it's really, really important for survivorship as well. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it necessarily reduces the risk of reoccurrence, um, but it definitely improves quality of life and the risk of dying from their cancer or from all causes. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Pregnancy and postpartum. Again, another favorite topic. We've talked about this a little bit in terms of safety, but with regard to the benefits of women who are during, who are going through pregnancy or postpartum periods, physical activity is generally safe. And we know that it reduces the risk of excessive weight gain during pregnancy, as well as gestational diabetes. Um, it can improve our fitness without increasing the risk of negative outcomes. So it does not increase the risk of low birth weight or preterm delivery or early pregnancy loss. And in the postpartum period, it can be very helpful too in terms of decreasing symptoms of postpartum depression and helping women to return to their pre-pregnancy weight. Wow. So yes. very, very important for pregnancy. And we didn't even get into any benefits to the little one, but right, exactly. Well, wow, that could be a great podcast yes. episode for the future. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've talked about exercise, how great exercise is, how important it is. But let's talk about the flip side of that, which is sedentary behavior. Mm-hmm. And really what sedentary behavior is, is it is time when you are not, um, you know, exercising. It's a state of low energy expenditure in a sitting, reclining, or lying position, which can include something like watching TV mm-hmm. and even something more productive like reading a book. That would mm-hmm. still be considered sedentary behavior. But you've probably heard terms like sitting is the new smoking, and that's because of the impact of sedentary behavior on our health. So the NHANES survey, which is the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which we've talked about a lot in the past, estimates that children and adults spend 7.7 hours per day sedentary. And according to that study, that's more than half the time that they're awake. So that's, that's a lot of time. A lot of time mm-hmm. that they're spending sedentary. And this is partly because the prevalence of sedentary professions has increased by 20% in the United States between 1960 and 2008. And there's been a simultaneous decline in more physically active professions. And therefore, it's not surprising that we see this epidemic of sedentarism and chronic disease, because the more time we spend in sedentary behavior, Mm -hmm. the more risk we have for things like uh, cardiovascular disease, dying from cardiovascular disease, dying from um, really any cause, type Mm -hmm. 2 diabetes, colon cancer, endometrial cancer, lung cancer. So sedentary behaviors have huge health risks. Yeah, there was a really interesting meta-analysis study in 2016 that pulled together 16 different studies looking at over a million people, and it demonstrated that increased daily sitting time and decreased amounts of that moderate to vigorous physical activity overall resulted in increased all-cause mortality all-cause mortality risk. So basically, the more time you spend sitting and the less time you spend doing moderate or vigorous activity, the higher your risk of dying. So from all this, we can glean two um, basic recommendations. So increase your moderate to vigorous physical activity, 
and reduce the amount of time spent sitting and replace it with lighter intensity activity. Mm -hmm. And again, this can be really simple stuff. This can be standing at a standing desk mm -hmm. or using something that Julie and I love very much, which is the Pomodoro technique where you're working for 20 minutes and then you're getting up for five minutes or so mm -hmm. and doing something lightly mm -hmm. uh, of light activity, something like taking a walk, um, moving around a little bit, stretching even. Yeah. Not only does that make you more productive and allow your brain to function better, mm -hmm. but also then you're getting more of that activity throughout the day. Right. All right. So now that we've addressed the impact of exercise and not exercising on our health, we wanted to just briefly spend a minute talking about the impact of exercise relative to some pharmaceutical drug interventions that we have for chronic disease. And now I always like to take these conversations with a grain of salt because, of course, when we're looking at these types of studies, we're looking at a specific disease or disease outcome. And exercise, of course, does not benefit just one specific condition that the drug is treating, as we've just illustrated um, it has a wide range of positive side effects. So things like improved mood, decreased cancer risk, decreased frailty and fall risk goes on and on. So even if the drug or even if exercise is equally or even slightly less effective than the drug, it still has lots of positive side effects and probably does not contain the unwanted negative side effects that the drug may have. So in my case, I would always <laughs> pick exercise any day if it's an option for a condition that I'm trying to treat. And there was a great 2015 study that looked exactly at this topic and this question. The study looked at 16 meta-analyses, including 305 randomized control trials, which is an absurd number when you're looking at it's research. a lot of data. And that includes, included 300,000 participants. And that's obviously a ton of data. And what they found was that physical activity was more effective than drug interventions among patients with stroke. And they looked at drugs like antiplatelet drugs, like uh, aspirin and Plavix and anticoagulants like Coumadin. And additionally, there was no difference in mortality outcomes between exercise and drug interventions for secondary prevention of heart disease, meaning people who already have heart disease and are trying to prevent dying from it or prediabetes. Now, the key point here is there's no difference, mm -hmm. right? Still means that there's a benefit, mm -hmm. right? Maybe there's no added benefit or better, or it's not superior over to the drug interventions, but it likely has a lot less side effects. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still very, very important. And certainly by this, we're not suggesting not to take the drugs if you have these right. conditions. If you have, have a stroke and you need to take aspirin, of course, that may be helpful. But it's also important to know that if you're taking aspirin, but you're also doing exercise, maybe the exercise is actually going to have more impact in the long run mm -hmm. on your um, long-term mortality than just taking that. There may be a synergistic effect. Yeah. Exactly. Who knows? Who knows? Um, and then there was a separate review of randomized control trials that compared exercise to antidepressants and showed that exercise and antidepressants were equally effective for depression. So that's another area. You know, we talk about all the brain health and cognitive benefits of and mood benefits of exercise. And it turns out, you know, just as effective as the antidepressant drugs, which are prescribed very well, some of the most prescribed drugs. And a lot of people are wanting country. to get off of these medications mm -hmm. or don't want to start them. So um, exercise is a great mm -hmm. alternative for that. And also a great adjunctive treatment, like mm -hmm. you mentioned, you know, we, you do see great benefits when you do them together. Right. Um, okay. So finally, we're going to now dig into exactly how this all works, right? How it's a great question mark. How, why is exercise so amazing? How does it actually give us so, so many amazing health benefits? Well, there's three main mechanisms that we're going to talk about by which exercise improves our health. The first is optimizing our stress response. The second is reducing inflammation. And then the third is enhancing our brain health.
All right. So we've talked about the stress response a lot in, mm -hmm. in a couple episodes and then also interviewed some really fantastic researchers on this topic. But the stress system is divided into two different branches, the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, a mouthful, mm -hmm. um, which includes glucocorticoids like cortisol. And the autonomic nervous system, which includes the sympathetic nervous system, which is that fight or flight system that releases things like epinephrine or adrenaline um, and norepinephrine. And activating these systems in response to an acute stressor, things like you know nearly getting in a car accident or mm -hmm. maybe from a more paleolithic perspective, getting chased by a tiger, <laughs> um, these systems prime other body systems for um, action mm -hmm. and in help coordinate this fight or flight response. And what happens is there's more mobilization of energy such as glucose, there's an increased heart rate and blood pressure. We get enhanced cognitive processes such as alertness, arousal, vigilance, um, attention. And we also rev up our immune system mm -hmm. because we're preparing in case we get injured or hurt ourselves. Um, however, if this um, system, these stress systems are activated for longer periods of time, not in short bursts like they were designed for, you know, mm -hmm. momentary, uh, for, for short episodes, you can get um, chronic systemic inflammation. And this then leads to a whole host of health conditions. And this is a topic that we're learning more and more about every single day. And one that we went really, we took a deep dive with, with George Slavich in episode 139. So make sure to check that out if you'd like to learn more about that. Such a good episode. That's why we keep referring yeah. back to it all the time. Um, okay. So what exercise, one of the mechanisms that exercise helps um, our health is by optimizing this stress response. So how does that work? Well, we know that acute exercise, so a single bout of exercise, actually activates our stress response. So similar to thinking about thinking about running away from a tiger, right? When we do a, a single bout of exercise, our stress response is increased. Now, this might not seem like a good thing, right? If we have a chronically active stress response and we're trying to mitigate that, why would we want to activate it even more by doing exercise? Well, it's because over time, by doing repeated episodes of exercise with enough rest in between, which is a key part of this, enough rest in between over time, it can actually have a beneficial effect in our ability to handle stress. Um, so we have, when we have repeated exercise over time with enough rest, this is, you know, it's sometimes referred to as stress training. So then when we go and do another episode of exercise, um, we might not mount the same stress response that we did initially. So our, our stress response is a little bit better controlled and optimized. And this is true not just for physical exercise, but for all types of stressors. So when we're doing regular exercise, we have a little bit more resilience against other stressors too, whether they're psychological stressors or other stressors that impact our metabolic health. Um, and this is an example of a concept called hormesis, um, which is true in our bodies, where if we're exposed to the right amount of stressors intermittently over time, they can induce this adaptive response and make us better able to handle stress. So whether it's exercise or whether it's changes in temperature or whether it is toxins or infections, you know, the right amount can help our body adapt and be better prepared to handle these stressors. But if we have too much, like let's say we're not exercising at all and we decide to go run 100 miles, that's probably going to be too much and put too much stress on our system and maybe have a negative impact. So some of the things that we do see in those who exercise regularly are 
Um, they have lower heart rates and lower blood pressures at rest. So this is a sign of a very robust parasympathetic system or that rest and digest system, which has helped to kind of build up over time by doing regular exercise to combat and balance that fight or flight system that's so commonly overactivated. And then higher physical fitness is also associated with a more optimized immune response. So again, it makes us better able to handle these stressors. So let's say we encounter an infection like, I don't know, (laughs) COVID-19. Maybe we're going to be better able to handle it because our response to stressors is more optimized. Right. So in addition to, you know, regulating our immune system, it also reduces the chronic systemic inflammation that we may experience too. And we can see some signs of that by, um, by looking at blood work. So for example, when we look at markers such as C-reactive protein or CRP for short, it tends to be lower in people who um, regularly exercise compared to those who are inactive. And regular exercise has also been shown to reduce brain inflammation in response to challenges such as stroke or infection. Again, that's the whole concept of the wellness sick, or the sickness, wellness, fitness continuum, mm-hmm. right? You're creating a buffer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you may think that this reduction, some people may think, okay, well, maybe exercise is reducing inflammation because when you exercise, a lot of times you decrease your amount of visceral fat or that fat around your organs and your abdomen. And we know the visceral fat is responsible for producing a lot of pro-inflammatory chemicals. And so maybe that's why exercise, you know, maybe helps us to reduce inflammation, but it turns out that it's actually, there are multiple mechanisms. So it seems that the anti-inflammatory effect of exercise, um, is actually also separate from the reduction in fat mass that comes with regular activity. So, you know, that may be part of it, but there's also other ways by which exercise helps us to reduce inflammation. All right, next, let's talk about brain health. Yes. Um, because this is something that a lot of people are interested in. Um, we know that, that chronic um, stress with persistent elevations in cortisol um, have detrimental effects on our brain. So we know that it reduces um, brain volumes in stress-sensitive regions, things like the hippocampus, which is critical for memory, the prefrontal cortex. We have decreased expression and signaling of neurotrophic factors. These are factors that improve cell survival, growth, and repair. We see reduced generation of neurons and supporting cells called glial cells. We see depression and impaired cognitive function. So pretty toxic, the stress stuff. Mm -hmm. And as we've talked about, regular exercise has been shown to enhance our positive mood, decrease depression and anxiety, and increase cognitive function. And this occurs really by two main mechanisms. So there's a structural mechanism, and then there's more of a functional mechanism or a cellular molecular mechanism. So as far as structural goes, regular exercise helps to increase some big words coming up here, neurogenesis, synaptogenesis, gliogenesis, and angiogenesis. So this is essentially increasing the production of neurons, the connections between those neurons, the supportive cells around the neurons called glia, and then blood vessels that bring nutrients to the neurons and take away the waste. So basically helping to have this healthy neural network. Um, And when we see regular exercise or people who are doing regular exercise, we see that they have increased gray matter in their brain um, and the integrity of their white matter is improved, especially in areas like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus, which Danny mentioned is so important for memory. Oftentimes we see that area, the hippocampus, decrease in volume with age, but in those who are doing regular physical activity, we see a mitigation of that. So we don't see that same volume loss in the hippocampal region. Now, the second mechanism besides the structural is the functional, like I mentioned. So that's the cellular and molecular mechanisms. And this is 
that we see increased growth factors and neurotransmitters being expressed, which are important for the function and the communication between neurons. So not only do we have this great structural network of more neurons and supporting cells and connections and blood vessels to bring them nutrients, but we also have improvement in the communication between those neurons and the ability for them to do their job. So together, both of these mechanisms really help to enhance what's called neuroplasticity or the ability of the brain to learn and make new connections between neurons and might be able to block and or reverse some of the detrimental effects of chronic stress on the brain that Danny just talked about. So brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is BDNF for short, mm -hmm. is um, one of the most important and widely studied growth factors when it comes to the impact of exercise. And it's something that's been mentioned a lot in, in the press. BDNF supports the survival of existing neurons, um, but also promotes the growth of new neurons and new connections. So kind of helps the whole ecosystem stay healthy. Low levels of BDNF are found in many chronic disease states and metabolic conditions associated with insulin resistance. So things like neurodegenerative diseases, like Alzheimer's, major depression, impaired cognitive function, and then America's favorite, cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, and obesity. Enhanced BDNF levels are associated with improved metabolism and cardiovascular function and decreased risk of Alzheimer's. So unfortunately, BDNF levels are downregulated with chronic stress and inflammation, but there's hope. Mm -hmm. Guess what the hope is? Exercise. <laughs> so exercise has been shown to significantly increase BDNF production in the brain, and then that circulates through the rest of the body. Right. So talk about a miracle drug, right? We're right. learning more and more about the amazing benefits of this chemical BDMF. And it turns out exercise helps us produce a lot more of it, not only in our brain, but also then circulating through the rest of the body. Correct. So that was a lot. <laughs> uh, we have covered a lot of ground once again, and we really, really appreciate you sticking with us through these episodes on the cornerstones of health, because like I mentioned, you know, they can be dense, they can be a little bit long, but we really feel like it's important for building this foundation. And we're excited to dive in deeper on some of the more nuanced topics here coming up in the future. So in this episode, we talked about how 80%, almost 80% of our U.S. population is not getting enough activity to substantially benefit their health. And we reviewed the most updated guidelines for physical activity for Americans. We talked about all the ways that physical activity can improve our health and how sedentary behavior can undermine it. We compared the effect of exercise to drugs for some common conditions like stroke, heart disease, prediabetes, and depression. And then we got into the details of just how exercise has such a big impact on our health. And we also learned that some of the benefits of exercise occur immediately mm -hmm. after a single session and others come only after we've been doing exercise consistently. Mm -hmm. And this is really why consistency is key above so all. So key. Do something every day or a couple times a week, rather than just bunching everything up into one, one week mm -hmm. a month. Um, and think of it in the same way that you do other activities, um, important activities every single day, brushing your teeth, doing the dishes, right? Mm -hmm. These are all things that are needed to keep your house in order. Mm -hmm. And exercise is one of the things that's needed to keep your body in order. It's so true. Um, and when it comes to helping a friend or a family member get started with exercise, Interventions that are based in behavior change theory are usually the most successful, and we're really excited to hopefully dive into some of these um, behavior change strategies on future episodes, but some that we really like and give some great context are looking at the stages of behavior change, motivational interviewing, and solution-focused therapy. Um, generally, community support and peer support is really helpful for creating sustained change. That's why we feel like you know, we see so many people have good long-term success with CrossFit is really because of the community that's around them. Um, technology can also be helpful, providing feedback or remote coaching and guidance to someone who's starting out. And then most important, I think we've both found that 
helping people to tie their physical activity to what matters most to them and what their specific goals are in life is key to finding long-term success. So, I mean, most people, ourselves included, it's hard to see the benefit of like, oh, I'm going to do this exercise today so that I don't have to be in a nursing home 50 years from now, right? That's not necessarily going to get you out of bed at 6 a.m. in the morning, (laughs) but maybe it's because, you know, you have, you want to be able to play with your grandkids or you want to be able to run a half marathon with your friend, or you want to be able to climb, do a big hike that you, you know, have planned coming up with your family, whatever it is that's most important and meaningful to you, connecting your exercise and your behavior change goals to that is really, really powerful. So, so we also recognize that there's a lot of work to do when it comes to getting our communities Mm -hmm. to exercise. And there are a lot of barriers to that and Mm -hmm. a lot of, um, barriers producing health disparities. So addressing these health disparities and this lack of access to physical activity is something that we need to work on um, as a community and really as a nation as well. Absolutely. So So, I think that wraps up our whirlwind on exercise. (laughs) Thank you again for sticking with us. But before we go, we do want to remind you of our strong commitment to not having sponsors on the podcast. And this is really for us to remain as unbiased as we possibly can for you. We never want you to think that we're talking about something or telling you about something just because we're getting paid. And the only way for us to continue what we're doing here and to bring you content like this is through your support, support from you guys. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other podcasts we've done, please show your support by heading over to pursuing-health, pursuing-health.com slash subscribe to become a Pursuing Health subscriber. And again, you can do this for as little as $4.99 per month, the cost of a latte. And we do this for a lot of other podcasts and content that we really enjoy. Mm-hmm. So we hope you'll support us in a similar way. And by doing that, you'll not only be supporting what we're doing, but you'll also get access to our workout programs, exclusive discount codes, and those live Q&A sessions that we love doing every single month with yes. our subscribers. So again, we'd really appreciate your support. You can head to pursuing-health.com forward slash subscribe to support us. And thank you again. We will catch you next time on Pursuing Health Pearls. Goodbye. <laughs>